This is the Nerdist Podcast number 314. It is the 314 episode. Uh, thanks, by the way, if you've been coming out to live shows. The ones in Tacoma were so much fun. And we are doing a live podcast February 2nd in San Francisco at SF Sketchfest. If you go to sfsketchfest.com, you can get tickets to that. And then I think I'm going to just be in L.A. for February and March because uh, Talking Dead is back Feb 10. And then we're also going to be recording the uh, BBC Nerdist TV show. So... February, March, back in town, April and May, back on the road again. Go to Nerdist.com slash calendar to get tickets, which hopefully will be on sale by that point. Uh, I would like to thank, for this sponsor of the Nerdist Podcast, Stamps.com. Um, you probably need to mail things. Everyone does. It's a part of our culture. But don't get mad about it with your stamp rage. Don't go to a post office. Print everything out on your computer with stamps.com. It updates postage. Postage rates are going up again. Before I start complaining like an old person, just get stamps.com and then it'll automatically adjust your rates. It'll almost be like it didn't happen, except you'll have slightly less money than you did before. But that's not stamps.com's fault. Tell the government you're mad. Well, right now, you can use the promo code NERDIST for a special offer, a $110 bonus offer. Uh, includes a digital scale and up to $55 of free postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Nerdist. That is Stamps.com, and the promo code is Nerdist. All right. This episode, I have been very excited about. I've had to hold on to it since October 3rd. Um, This was recorded uh, at the BAFTA Los Angeles Behind Closed Doors evening with Mark Hamill. Um, This is to launch the games activities of BAFTA Los Angeles. And I would love to encourage you to go to BAFTALA.org, B-A-F-T-A-L-A.org, to learn more about BAFTA Los Angeles and more about BAFTA Games as well. And uh, you can, I believe, here's why we had to hold this podcast for so long, because BAFTA shot video of the event. Uh, There were probably about 75 or 100 people there in a tiny, tiny theater in, in Hollywood. And so they had to get the video ready. And so now I believe the video is ready. If you go to BAFTALA.org, you might be able to see some footage from this from this chat where uh, Mark and I talked about pretty much everything, but also video games and voiceover and and uh, obviously a bunch of fun Star Wars stuff. But uh, it was <laughs> it was really cool. So a couple things: the audio, um, the lav mics weren't amazing. Um, they were pretty good, but you're you're not going to pick up the audience there. You can barely hear them in the background, so it sounds like there's just silence in the background. Sometimes there actually were people there, uh, and they were happy. I promise. Uh, but it's just that they weren't mic'd. Also, uh, the mics, uh, the levels were a little weird picking up our voices from time to time, but uh, we did our best to uh, tweak that a bit with uh, with Katie Levine's uh, post-magic. So here we go, the Nerdist Podcast, number 314, with Mark Hamill! Holy shit! Now entering Nerdist.com. Stage, uh, Mark Hamill. Welcome. Thank you. It's an honor. It really is an honor to meet you. I, I, I do want to. I'm going to focus most of the talk on on voiceover and games sure. uh, and that sort of Whatever. thing. But um, 
Uh, but I am going to do the thing that everyone does to you, which is, before they start asking you questions, tell you uh, how they related to you in some way, which is I saw Star Wars in the theater in 1977. My dad took me. Uh, it's, uh, it's been such an integral part of who I am, and I think also for, for a lot of young nerds, before that was a, a, a cool word at all, it was sort of our oasis, you know, like it really was. So uh, I just I want to thank you for being a part of it and for uh, I may have shot your action figure with pellet guns at times, but it's nothing personal. All I just right. lined them all up. You, Greedo. Um, I always thought R5-D4 got a bad rap uh, right from the get-go. Um, and, and now I'm done fanning all over you. I just had to say those things. What would you say to Mark Hamill if you met him? I would complain about R5-D4. That was kind of bullshit. Um, well, feel free to let your geek flag fly. <laughs> I, I do. I mean, I, I can relate to it not so much in because of Star Wars, but because of other things that I loved. I grew up reading Famous Monsters magazine and building the Aurora model kits. And my favorite movie when I was a kid was the black and white King Kong. It just killed me. I mean, I, I've always said that's the male equivalent of Gone with the Wind in terms of an emotional ride for, for a kid, you know, because I, I just cried my eyes out. And uh, it was on the Million Dollar Movie uh, when we lived in New York. And my mom said, why do you keep watching it? night after night, because I thought, <laughs> if they'd only let him stay on the island, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, you know, years later, you flash forward to uh, Homer weeping over, not specifically King Kong, but a giant ape movie, just because he's different, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I think it's a guy thing, you know. I don't know, but, you know, because uh, I like Gone with the Wind as much as anyone I, uh, in terms of historical importance in, 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 in film history, but it didn't move me the way I... Well, especially uh, that last did. scene when Clark Gable's grasping on to the uh, Empire State Building and they shoot him <laughs> off. That was a really yes, nice moment. Course. Oh, you were on The Simpsons, right? Wasn't it the episode where Homer becomes like I a bodyguard did. for... A... Yes, it was called Mayored to the Mob. That's right. And it was, it was one of those good news, bad news uh, conversations because I just, I just love The Simpsons from when from the minute I saw them as shorts on the Tracy Ullman show. Of course, show. yeah. And when my agent called, she says, I have good news and bad news. I said, what's that? She goes, the good news is, because I've been bugging her for years, I'd love to get on The Simpsons. I'd love to get on The Simpsons. Uh, they want you for The Simpsons. So I was ecstatic. And I said, well, what's the bad news? They, they want you to play yourself. <laughs> Which is kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, one thing I love about doing voiceover is it sort of epitomizes what character acting is, which is you disappear into the character and people don't see you, it, you know, it just, they see the character. And, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons I went to New York, because I knew I could get parts on Broadway and off-Broadway that were character parts that weren't coming to me here in Southern California. So, well, all I'm saying is, the dilemma when you play yourself is, who am I? <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't have a really good sense of who, who I am, you know, even the, with the way I talk. I remember that week walking around the house saying to my kids, does this sound like me? Does, it, does this sound like me? Does this sound like me? Does this, hey, 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 hey. You know, I mean, it was weird. It, and, you know, because then, then you read the script and you go, oh, okay, I'm, I sort of get it's their perception of me. And I got up on my high horse, and I said, I never appeared in my Luke costume for money. 
what do they have me doing dinner theater for? I've been on Broadway. I got a drama desk nomination for best actor in a musical. And my kids were like, Dad, get off, you know, get over yourself. It's The Simpsons. I went, oh, of course, you're supposed to make fun of yourself. Okay. You know, uh, and, and I, like I say, I mean, well, that's a good example of turning into a fanboy. Because I went to the recording, and Dan Castellaneta, and Julie Kavner, and all the people that do that, the incredible voices there. And uh, I was just uh, awestruck. Because all of these characters that I'd known for so many years, I think I was in the ninth or tenth season, somewhere in there. So they've been around so long. To see, hear these voices coming out of these people, uh, you know, it, it's still remarkable to me, you know, because you have such an image of, it's why I like, you know, when people, kids say, do the Joker, I say, close your eyes, or, you know, and kids are trusting, you know, if I said it to you, you'd say, hey, what are you trying to pull here, you know? For you, I would be like, okay. Or turn, <laughs> they're closed. Turn your back, you know, I mean, just so that you don't have the, the me ruining the image you have in your head. Um, but uh, uh, they were uh, kind enough at one point because I said, "Well, you know, yeah, of course I'll do it." You know, I mean, uh, but um, I'd really love it if you could find a, another voice for me to do. And they actually, they let me play the head of the bodyguard school, and it was kind of a parody of Cool Hand Luke. Where you know you are without a doubt the worst bunch of recruits I've ever seen. You know, drop and give me twenty. That guy. In fact, my theory is they developed the fat Texan character based on that bodyguard guy, but they had one of their repertory people do it. You know, I've never gone back. I only did the one. Uh, would you want? I'll help you sue him. Oh no 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 no. No, listen, leave it to actors to always complain. <laughs> I get on The Simpsons, and now I'm complaining that I'm not a regular. <laughs> well, that's just, that's just, because, that's just no, because you're a I fan. Just, no, but I'm just saying in, in, in the way that character functions. Yeah. He's a, in fact, if you just saw this recent clip of Homer going to vote uh, in the 2012 election, he's the guy that's sitting there saying, you know, it's, it's my duty to make sure that every American finds it difficult to vote, you know. He's the voter suppression guy. So if they need a loudmouth right winger, they go to that character. And it's probably just easier to give it to one of their hugely talented, Carl Weidegott and uh, Hank Azaria. And the list just goes on. Tress McNeil, uh, just some of the best voiceover people uh, around. And I've worked with, oh my gosh, so many great, great, great artists. And I, I remain a fan. One of the things that happened to me when I first started doing voiceover, it was in the early 90s. People like uh, uh, Rob Paulson. Oh, yeah, or, I know Rob well. Okay, and, and uh, Jeff Bennett and all that. They would be surprised that I knew who they were because <laughs> I'm a huge animation fan. And, uh, you know, I would record a lot of these shows. I mean, the only way you could actually read the credit list would be in those days to record it on videotape right. and then freeze frame it. And it would be all shaky. And you're like, oh, I well, but I mean, if you out. just tried to look at, you know, you know how fast those credits go yeah. by. You know, 60 <laughs> names and you get to read one name and when you go to read another name, it's gone. So, I mean, I knew these people. Uh, you know, um, Jess Harnell and Maurice Lamar. Oh, my gosh. And a lot of them wound up in Comic Book the Movie. I mean, I, I had such goodwill with these people that were, in 2004, 
I'd been in then doing voiceover about a dozen years, and uh, you know, I didn't have the budget to really have proper casting sessions. I was able to go around to all my voiceover friends. Many of them starved to be on camera again because they came out of television or they did improv or stand-up or uh, a lot of different. But you know, they, they, some people don't want to give up the an anonymity. I know that uh, Frank Welker, for instance, right. he didn't want to do on camera for me. He did a voice for me. But uh, to a person, everyone said yes. And I always say it's the mad, 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 mad world of voiceover. Because what mad world was to comedy in the early 60s, like Andrea Romano said, you know, if, if you have a screening and a bomb goes off, it sh it'll shut down the animation industry. Because everybody, uh, mostly everybody, was in it. A, a large portion of, of the most prominent people in voiceover were in it. And Andrea Romano, by the way, I've known Andrea for like 20 years. And Andrea Romano is uh, head of Warner Brothers casting. And so Andrea is responsible for... Uh, Batman the Animated Series, like all the Batman series, like all the, all the Warner Brothers, like all that, that classic, um, well, when I say classic, I don't mean like Chuck Jones classic. I mean like second wave of classic Warner Brothers animation. Andre Romano was responsible for bringing in voice talent and, and directing them, and she's a remarkable person who I hope wins a giant award someday. Oh, she's got a shelf full of Emmys. She does. I've watched the extras on some of these DVDs they send me, and when she does her interviews, she has all her Emmys behind her. <laughs> uh, so let's. Well, you, you you talked about a bunch of stuff in there, and I want to hit on a bunch of points. First of all, it's uh, I, um, I I've worked in I've done voices for about seven years, mm -hmm. and it always happens when you're talking about the little kid. When you say close your eyes, they always think it's a good idea to bring kids to recording sessions, and the kids get in there. And within a minute, they could not be more bored mm. than just watching adults. They're like, that's not the characters that, that I There's know. There's no sound effects. It's not. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a process that, you know, only to someone that's uh, predisposed to find it interesting. Uh, you know, like you say, if it's a little kid that's expecting the, the impact of the finished product, they're sorely disappointed. What I find shocking is when uh, people like Pam Siegel, mm -hmm. Pamela Siegel Adlin, a wonderful actress. I mean, she's on the Louis C.K. show. Oh, yeah, she, yeah. She's Bobby Hill on King of the Hill. But she, this girl has, she could make a, a, a sailor blush <laughs> with the dialogue. I mean, I can't even quote her here. It's just too profane. And somehow she makes it work. She's like 5'4". She's adorable. And she'll say things that you just go, she, what? She sounds like a pack of cigarettes. Well, all, I, all I'm saying is that we'd have... People come around like uh, uh, tourists, you know, giving, being given, or Japanese uh, businessmen being given a tour of Cartoon Network, and we'd have to warn Pamela, because especially with kids, or Charlie uh, Adler. Oh, right, right. You know, he's amazingly and hilariously profane, just in his direction. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you have to remember that not every kid under, you know, a certain age is used to that kind of dialogue. I mean, I'm not a prude or anything, but let a kid be a kid. Right. Well, the internet now has ruined everyone, so I just feel like, ah, the kids have already heard all these words. They already know. I guess. But <laughs> <laughs> how far back does your animation, like when you say you're, you, when you say you're, you're like an animation nerd, like how far, how far back does it go? Well, as soon as we got a television set. I don't remember when we didn't have a television set. Uh, but uh, they, they showed all the black and white Looney Tunes, those yeah. I loved. I loved Rocky and Bullwinkle. I loved whenever 
the Disney show on Sunday nights would show animation. I just loved animation, and it was a turning point. When they did a, a, a Disney show where they actually showed Clarence Nash doing the voice of Donald Duck. Right. And that woman that was doing the operatic, <laughs> you know, I just went, oh, something clicked. That there were human beings behind. Somebody goes to work, and that's their job, to cluck an, op an aria. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, I want in. I mean, they're, they look like they're having so much fun. Same with uh, Famous Monsters, when you say, oh, that's how they did the dinosaurs. You know, they took a frame and then moved it in another frame, and 24 of those makes a second. Mm -hmm. I mean, it made sense. I mean, I knew I would never have the patience to be able to do something. That was beyond my comprehension, you know, how they could just even keep track of, you know, if the tail's swishing and the head's I mean, it blew my mind. But it made me realize it was a tangible goal to be in a business that either made cartoons or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, and I was one of seven children as the middle. I had an older brother, two older sisters, two younger sisters and a younger brother. My father was a professional naval uh, officer. And I mean, I kept it a secret for the longest time because I thought, you know, why bring on the ridicule of saying, you know, I'm going to be in the movies, you know, or I'm going to be in TV or, or whatever. And then, and then Star Wars came out, and it was kind of hard to hide it from them at well, that point. <laughs> but they also were always made sure that, that I never took myself too seriously. Oh, now you're a big deal. You're in this big movie. And, you know, I think that helped me keep a, a certain balance there. Plus, that's an unusual example because, like you say, I mean, it wasn't just a popular movie. It was just a ridiculously... Uh, explosive pop culture moment. Right. I mean, uh, at one point, someone said, stick your head in the theater. I said, well, I've seen it. They said, no, no, you can't believe it, because this is about three or four months into the run. And I, I stuck my head in, and there were beach balls, you know, <laughs> big giant going around. It was more like a party, you know, where they'd all, they, they, they were, it was almost like Rocky Horror. They knew right. uh, to answer back. Uh, they had their favorite moments. I mean, it, it was astonishing to me. And I, I don't know how uh, they knew uh, before. To give you an example, the day that it opened, which was May 25th of 77, uh, they were, we were working on the sound mix for the, um, the 70 millimeter prints were already in the theaters, but they were working on the sound for the 35 millimeter prints. And I said, the car picked me up and I said, can you go buy Grauman's Chinese? Because the movie's playing and nobody could decide on a poster. There was big arguments over what would convey what this movie was about. Was it heavy and uh, deep and you know, intellectual like uh, 2001 or was you know, Little Rascals in Outer Space. I mean, <laughs> you know, there was a great to and fro in terms of how to promote it. And the upshot is that there was no agreement. We didn't get a poster until I don't, I don't want, there's probably fans that know better than me, but certainly not by opening day. And I don't know whether it took a week or a month uh, before eventually they, I think they came up with a Hildebrand poster with the, you know, the, the guy that looked like Luke's, you know, uncle you know, with a fantastic physique and six foot four, you know. Um, but again, so there was that um, back and forth about how to promote it. So we drove by the theater, and to my amazement, 
there were lines around the block. And I couldn't figure out how that could be. There was a trailer that was playing. Carrie and I stuck our head. We said to the guy you know, at, at the, in Westwood, I said, well, we're in this movie that's coming out in about a month. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> it's just, it's kind of a weird space no, movie. No, I mean, we said it's called Star Wars. I mean, we heard you're showing the trailer. We just want to see the trailer. And we don't want to have to uh, bother anybody. And we don't really want to. He let us go in. You know, I didn't ID us or anything. I don't know. He said, go ahead. So we stuck our head in. I still remember, too, because we'd never seen any footage at that point. Well, the, you know, the stuff we ADR'd and so forth, we'd seen footage. I take that back. But my point is, you know, in terms of effects and all of this, and I don't know if you remember this, somewhere in space, it could all be happening. They're coming in too fast. You know, intercut with, the, intercut with this slow sort of message, and they'd come to the end of the message. You know, more fast cutting of, you know, assault on the Death Star. Uh, and uh, shots of uh, the Wookiee with his headphones, which is, you know, w you know just showing that to an audience with no sort of out explanation. <laughs> you know? And honestly, in 77, yeah. where people just aren't used to seeing yeah, that Yeah, when they kind say science thing. fiction, they go, oh, is it like 2001? You go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rather than try and explain it, you know. I mean, there was Planet of the Apes. I mean, there's certain things I guess you could sort of wedge in there, but... Even that's not a good example because they don't think of it really as a space movie. Well, it's also, it, it was the action element. Like, you know, like there was such an action element right. to it. Uh, 2001, great movie, not a lot of action. Right. Not a lot of action. And not a lot of laughs. Right. So, um, <laughs> although the computer turning on the human, I mean, that appealed to me. But pretty funny. Weird sense of that humor. pretty funny. Uh, no, but to finish this particular story, we see this trailer. Uh, so, you know, somewhere in space it could all be happening. And then it says, a billion light years in the making, and it's coming to your galaxy this summer. And there's a huge explosion. And then somebody called out from the back of the theater, yeah, and it's coming to late night TV about a week after that. <laughs> <laughs> because, and Carrie and I just looked at each other like, uh, it's, it was funny. He got a really good laugh, one of those, you know, uh, audience. But yeah, I wish you could attract that guy down a month later. They're like, well, based how on come what, it's not on TV yet, based, asshole? Based on, what, based on what he had just seen, there was no way in his mind that could have been a successful movie. It was just too goofy. I, and they didn't really, I don't think they really singled out Sir Alec, you know, which is a sure. major component just in its credibility and getting financing and so forth. You know, a, a, a technique they later used with Marlon Brando and Superman to give it sort of a gravitas that it sure. wouldn't ordinarily have had with mostly unknowns or all unknowns. Um, but uh, again, I, I mean, uh, I don't know how these people, some people say, well, the reason there was lines around the block on the very first day is there's a core audience of people that will go see fantasy and science fiction films no matter what. But like I say, I mean, I don't remember any ads on Saturday Night Live. I certainly don't remember any ads on TV. Um, there might have been a newspaper ad, but there were no posters, and they, they did have stapled up lobby cards. Uh, but uh, um, like I say, it was one of those things that it's always, because uh, at the time I remember saying, this thing will be popular. I think it'll be as popular as the original Planet of the Apes. I was one of the people that said, I really think this has all the elements. I said, even if it doesn't do it really well at the box office, it's going to be a cult movie. 
meaning college kids are going to come to midnight screenings and love it because of the humor, yeah. because the robots were so funny and, and the you know and the cynicism of the Han Solo character and the gravitas of Sir Alec and just all of it. I mean, it's a, I said it's more a fairy tale than it is traditional science fiction. We got a farm boy and a wizard and a pirate and uh, you know and a princess. It's really uh, it seems to me that it has a great a, a chance for crossover appeal because they, they, had, they do to all these studies and they said, well, women don't like science fiction. In fact, they wanted to take the word wars out of the title, 20th Century Fox. They had a name the movie contest while we were shooting it at the, on the bulletin board. If you could come up with a name that was better than Star Wars, you know, because they, you know, they had all these focus groups that say, you know, well, 30% of people that polled with that title, think it's a behind-the-scenes look at the uh, Elizabeth Taylor Richard Burton <laughs> marriage. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> and uh, and I kept thinking, well, what would be a better title? Because the fir first time I ever read a script, it was called, um, let's see, "The Adventures of Luke Skywalker," as taken from the Journal of the Wills, Saga Number One. The Star Wars. That was the title. Surprised they didn't stick with that long. <laughs> well, title. Is, is there a longer title? A funny thing happened on the way to the no, forum. <laughs> How to succeed in business without really trying. Uh, but uh, the long and the short of it was nobody came up with a title that because a lot of people tried. I tried. I can't remember what I came up with. Uh, but and nobody actually ever came up with a title they liked better than that. But that was the story all over. I mean, I remember George went to uh, McDonald's. He got turned down, so we went to Burger. We got Burger King, and he went to uh, Mattel Toys. And we got turned down, so we got Kenner. Uh, we, were, we were everybody's second choice. Uh, for such an interesting, just that that whole idea. I mean, of course, that story is a classic story. They're like, ah, merchandising rights. Well, who I cares? Know. I know. It's you know? amazing. Never happened And I again. don't understand because when I read it, I said, oh, my God, this thing's a toy box. Everything is a toy. Oh, my God. You a floating oh, car and a lightsaber. <laughs> and what's, What were you going to say? I was going to say you were on one of my favorite episodes of Amazing Stories, too. Oh, yeah. You just said toy box. You just right. That's right. You were the guy. It's called Gather Ye Acorns. Yes. And it was about people have said because they know me and they know I'm a collector. They say, well, that must have been written for you. It's directed, by the way, by Norman Reynolds, the art director on, on, uh, on uh, George's movies. But uh, uh, no, it was actually going to be uh, Timothy Hutton. And then uh, scheduling or something happened, and he couldn't do it. So No, no, you're better. Than well, I was, uh, having told you the story of the second choice, <laughs> I was Kenner to his Mattel. I mean, it is... It is <laughs> If you haven't if you haven't seen it, the the amazing stories, it's re it's really it's a beautiful story. I always was kind of saddened by it though because it, it it took the guy's whole life for yeah. that dream to be realized. But but ultimately, it's a really beautiful story which I don't want to spoil. So so look it up if you can find it. Find it on Netflix or wherever Amazing Stories is. But uh, but going back, so when you're you know when you're making this movie, and my, my girlfriend's dad worked on Star Wars and yeah. and uh, he did the special effects for it, and so he uh, John Dykstra. Oh. And so you know for for him, he just said. You know, we were just hanging out, making stuff in a warehouse. We had no idea that you know. I mean, when you're when you're shooting this, like you said, oh, maybe it'll be a cult hit. What was what was some of the what was some of the feeling from the other cast members? Did they have they're like eh, after this, maybe I'll go do theater or whatever? Like, what was their what was their feeling? Well, I don't know if I really got a feel for their 
take on it. I do know shooting it in England where there's no real reference point. They have Dan Dare and uh, Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. Most of them thought that it was going to be a, a, a strictly for children, shown only in matinees. Because they had, again, no reference point. They were very amiable about it. But they were also, you know, <laughs> Don't you think? It really is? I mean, it's so weird. Are you hearing that, BAFTA? <laughs> but also, too, they had a great sense of humor because they'd pick up on these lines. And I remember um, the boom guy. Uh, every time we do a take, I'd look up at him and he'd give me one of these. <laughs> And he would love, he lo you know, he'd be walking around, you'd hear him muttering, we're all going to Alderaan, all of us, mate. <laughs> I'm, go I'm going to Alderaan, are you going to Alderaan? I am. Fucking A, I'm going to Alderaan. <laughs> because they'd pick up on, you know, and then it'd be hard to say, I said, will you stop doing that? Because, you know, we're not finished with the scene. I still have to say, but I want to go to Alderaan. And you're going to make me laugh, you know. Uh, because there's so many unusual ter terms. I mean, you, just the fact that he was called a Wookiee. They couldn't, they couldn't get over that. And then somebody made the mistake of, uh, they, there was a typo, and it was typed out as Obi-Wan Key, which was W-A-N hyphen K-I. Well, W-A-N-K, that's Wanky. enough. Yes. And we're like, what, what, what is that? Does that mean something here that it doesn't mean in the States? Uh, so, but it was all in good fun, like I say. And there was a real bonding that went on when we went to North Africa and then came back to London. And I made a point of really trying to visit people's houses and go for Sunday dinner. Uh, the two guys, uh, Jack Purvis and Kenny Baker, were in a group called the Minitones. And I thought, I'd really love to see what uh, modern-day vaudeville. I mean, it was still a living, breathing occupation in those days. And they said, well, all right, you can come along. Keep your mouth shut so people don't know you're a Yank, and we'll let you. We did, uh, you know, you do like a family club in the afternoon, and then you do a nightclub at night. Um, I really love to get the, I mean, there's no, my son was born when we did Empire in uh, our firstborn. Uh, my wife's here somewhere tonight, but uh, uh, he was born in St. John's Wood in London. So I've always had, and even before I went to England, you know, I loved the Ealing comedies, I love Peter Sellers and the Goons and Monty Python and the Beatles, come on, the Stones. I mean, there, there, there's so much to love about uh, British culture. Uh, and uh, then to, to, to go there and, and work there, is, uh, you get to see the country in a way you wouldn't if you were just a, a tourist in London. Yeah. In between, um, you, you, did, you were in Wizards, right? The Ralph Bakshi movie? That was the first voiceover I ever did, yeah. Did you, was it something that you were setting out to do, or was it that they just say, hey, do you want to... No, I, again, I mean, in fact, uh, after Wizards, uh, and I'm trying to remember when that was, I did one series at Hanna-Barbera, which was called Genie, which was the animated version of I Dream of Genie. I later right. worked with, uh, with um, uh, Larry Hagman and said, you know, I played the teenage version of you in a cartoon. He was like, let me hear how, 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 how'd you do me. I said, well, I didn't really do you. I mean, 
Julie McWhorter was a spot on. She did. Uh, was that Jeannie and then like the big babu? Yeah, yeah, babu. yeah. You know who that was? Yeah. Joe Besser. Oh, Not that was so Joe Besser. Hard. Yeah, yeah. One of the Three Stooges. Uh, but uh, it, that, it was interesting because I did that one series and almost to a, the day, that was like in 72, and I didn't do voiceover again until 92 when I did uh, Batman. Yeah. And, and once I did Batman, I got the part through my theatrical agent because I said, I really, again, like The Simpsons, I said, I, really, I read about it before it was on the air. I said, they're going to do this apparently with a uh, high level of quality. They're going to try and um, you know, emulate the Fleischer cartoons, uh, the Superman cartoons. You know, he was famous for doing Popeye and, and Betty Boop, but he also did uh, you know, something like 1920 uh, uh, Superman theatrical cartoons. To make a long story short, um, uh, I did the show, I got the part, and, you know, you know, what I realized after about a year uh, was that there were voiceover agents, agents that were specifically for voiceover. I went, wow, I didn't know that. And because of the success of the show, there was like this mini bidding war where I really had a choice of agents to go to. You know, unlike my theatrical car career, you know, uh, there was a demand for me, because once the they find you that you do one thing well, they want you to do it over and over and over again. How can I get typecast in animation? Nobody can see me. Uh, but you know, they, you know, I have a preponderance for getting the villain in these superhero cartoons. So I said, well, I gotta stop that. I mean, one thing that's great about animation is you get to do dialects. I mean, I never got to do dialects until I went to Broadway. I did The Elephant Man, that was a dialect. I used in Amadeus, it was a different dialect. And room service, I was very New York uh, guy, you know. Uh, Alan Arkin directed that. I was sort of doing a version of Alan. You could have dropped that in to start with Uncle Owen, these yeah. droids. <laughs> I want to go to Tashi Station and get some power converters. <laughs> yeah. Cut, Mark. Come on, man. Uh, There's not a New York on Tatooine. What are you doing? And I loved it. I've always loved the music of, of, of people's voices. and. Even when I was a kid, because we moved every, I went to nine schools in 12 years. And because uh, my dad was in the Navy, it was always coast to coast to coast to coast. And, uh, you know, you hear the, the dialects to me were fascinating. Uh, not just the people that lived in our neighborhood, but, uh, you know, the first time I saw Dracula, Bela Lugosi. I never drink wine. I said, where's this guy from, you know? Why does he talk like that? Or, or Boris Karloff. Boris. He had sort of a lisp when he spoke, and he used to introduce a show called Thriller. <laughs> and I, again, I didn't know where he's, or Laurel and Hardy. Now, uh, Oliver Hardy was from Georgia, I believe, and, and, and Stan Jefferson Laurel was English, you know? Um, but, so, but I was, I, I loved it, I loved it, I loved it. You know, and I loved the Beatles, and then when we saw their movie, and they, you heard them speak, you know, on the Ed Sullivan's, or they just said, thanks, Ed, you know, thanks for having us, or whatever. You didn't really hear them speak, then you saw the movie, and went, again, wow, that's such a fascinating dialect. So I've always loved to hear dialects and imitate dialects, and like I say, I never thought I would use them professionally, and, and a voiceover really opened up that avenue to use uh, so many uh, dialects. I'm doing a character now on uh, How to Train Your Dragon as a TV series. I don't know whether it's been on yet, but they said, you know, because I watched the movie when I was going to go audition for them, and because it said the co the copy I got said it was Scottish, 
And I can do Scottish, but it's, it's, it's not, I'm not as comfortable. It's not as comfortably in my wheelhouse as some other dialects. I mean, because uh, I've been to Scotland, there'd be the odd Scottish person on the crew, but the, the, most of the English dialects I heard and hung out with and you know, spent years around were, were um, you know, uh, various parts of London, you know, East London, Cockney, and so forth. And so I was thinking about that. I said, you know, because really when I'm doing my dialogue, I'm thinking, I'm sort of doing a, a, an imitation of Mike Myers doing Shrek, <laughs> which is not good. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if you do Irish, you really want to go and listen to Donald Crisp, and you want to hear real Irish actors. If you're lazy, you know, you'll take it from the Lucky Charms commercial. <laughs> Seriously. Blue diamonds, you know, purple hearts, or whatever it is. <laughs> But if you really want to be a good actor, you should get tapes or get, you know, seek out movies from authentic uh, uh, um, people, the people that have authentic uh, dialects. So I thought, well, okay, you know, um, trying to think of, uh, I think I watched Paths of Glory. I, I was looking for, uh, it, time got awfully late, and I thought, well, this is passable, and I'm probably not going to get it anyway, so I'll just do it. And, uh, but when I went in to record, I said, can I do a second take and just do what I want? Because one thing I'd done is if you rent the movie of How to Train Your Dragon, which is a real surprise. I mean, I didn't expect, I thought it was going to be a typical musical, and you know, it's very uh, original in its approach, including the voices, because they're all over the place. This guy's got a standard English, this guy's Canadian. They've got American accent. They're all mushed up together. Craig Ferguson. Yeah, yeah, he's wonderful. Kristen Wiig's in it, but all these people, they don't seem to, they're not striving for authenticity or consistency. So I felt a little, uh, you know, uh, I felt secure in at least saying, well, let me just do it a second time in a dialect I'm more comfortable with. And I not only did I get the part, but they said, yes, do take two. What does it sound like? Well, his, his name is Alvin. He's a very stupid Viking. <laughs> and he, uh, you know, he's supposed to be a villain of sorts, but I don't, I never think of villains as being, you know, they don't think of themselves as evil at all, do they? <laughs> Say, everybody, I'm misunderstood. It's a problem. Nobody gets me. <laughs> so um, I'm doing uh, I'm doing one of the sparks, one of the guys on the electrical crew from uh, from uh, the the movies I did in England, and he was very funny. And they have such color colorful ways of expressing themselves. Let me tell you something: you couldn't organize a piss off in a brewery. <laughs> Can I just be frank with you? You know. <laughs> <laughs> you go, wow. I was just, I was, in, I was shooting something in England right. uh, last year, and we're driving by. I'm in the van. It's like all the sound crew or whatever. That's who you really want to hang out with on your, on the crew because they're the funniest. Like, they're just cool. They just make you Down to laugh. earth. Yeah, they're the real people. I'd never heard this term before. We drive by, and there's this dog just uh, taking a, mo a monumental dump on the sidewalk. And then he just turns aside and goes, Look at that dog curling one out over there. I'm like, curling one out? You made it sound charming. I love it. I love you, England. In Australia, a girl walked by wearing very tight jeans and said, did you get a load of her? She's really chewing denim. 
It's very colorful. <laughs> very evocative of what our eyes all went to when she, when she walked by. Yeah, well, that's a, just an earthy way that middle class people have of expressing themselves. And they're fun at wherever, from Australia to England to my wife's from Carmi, Illinois. I mean, to, to uh, hear the local colloquialisms are what's so fascinating. When I've directed animation, I, I've said, or games, I say, you know, we have to cover the dialogue so that we don't get the writers mad at us. But if you want in a B or C take, you know, you can tweak it, use your own, you know, if you want to put it in your own vernacular, um, or if you think of a joke that's funnier, that's on what's on the page, I'm more than willing to take credit for your creativity. <laughs> and uh, uh, sometimes you just get incredible, because like Jim Cummings is from, uh, New Orleans, and he added so many uh, things to his character, and like I say, you, if you empower the actor and let them be part of the process, uh, you get re wonderful results. And Part of the, the reason I wanted to try that is I read about Jay Ward's technique, and that was completely his technique. I mean, um, I've heard, uh, I did... Uh, a show called Canon with William Conrad. And this oh, is, yeah. This is in the days way before the internet, so it wouldn't be so impressive now because you just IMDB the guy. But he was stunned in 1972 that I knew that he was the narrator on Rocky and Bullwinkle. Yeah. Meanwhile, in Frostbite Falls, Minnesota. <laughs> uh, the same way that Ted Knight was the, the voice of Super Friends. Many voices. Meanwhile, back in the hall of Aquaman, summons yeah. a nearby school of narwhals. There you go. Yeah. Oh, Mary. He told us about uh, Friday early evenings. They'd get together. Uh, and they'd all have cocktails. This was like 5960. And he said, with all those people there, I mean, it was an incredible cast. Uh, uh, Paul Fries and June Foray and yeah. uh, Charlie Ruggles and, uh, uh, you know, all of them. Uh, that was his technique. Just, you know, bring what you can to the table. And the scripts were funny in the first place. It was the opposite of Hanna-Barbera. I remember we'd be around the table. I'd be cracking up at the jokes that the guys were coming up with, just the actors. And Joe Barbera would say, all right, now let's get back to that. This is what we pay the writers for. And he'd go back to another Flintstones rock joke, you know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, everybody has their own techniques. I was lucky I got in. I mean, apparently, Jeannie was the last show Joe personally directed. Uh, Chris Zimmerman, who I still work with all the time, and she directs regular show and some of the things I'm doing now. Uh, she, she was the one who told me that, uh, yeah, in 19, what it was, 71, just, just under the wire. And I was, you know, like I say, I was at a table read where, you know, these were all the people that I listened to when I was nine years old. Dawes Butler and John Stevenson, all these famous voices, you know, from Huckleberry Hound and Yogi Bear and all of that. I mean, uh, um, I, you know, I, I'm always surprised, you know, that people think, oh, well, you know, at animation, that's kind of like, you know, second rate to Broadway or it's so, television it's so not true. or movies. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, well, first of all, your portrayal of the Joker, the Joker was Well, people think amazing. they're, oh, 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 you know, you have people come up with, the, oh, you just make funny voices, right? You know, I mean, a lot of people don't come up and say, oh, I could do Broadway or I could do, a lot of people come up and say, listen to my Homer Simpson. <laughs> and, you know, or listen to my Joker, you know, and right. a lot of times they really are good. 
You know, they're great at imitating and so forth. But I'm telling you, I mean, it's not fair to just think these people can do funny voices. No, they it's are great. It's not actors. the same, especially when you. I, I've never had the pleasure of working with you, but I've worked with you know um, D. Bradley Baker and Jeff Bennett and and Paulson and Maurice and uh, and Frank Welker and all these people, and they just. The, because they're not bound, like we said, by their sort of appearance. Because, mm -hmm. if, you know, if you're just acting in a theatrical thing as, as a live-action thing, you're somewhat bound by what you look like as to how sure. far the character's going to go. Um, but with animation, and these guys hit all these crazy levels, and, and they hit lines that you're like, I never would have thought to hit the line that way. That I honestly, I honestly think voiceover acting is... Is is harder in a lot of senses because they have to bring so much to the table to bring the character to life. Right, and there's you know there's so many different degrees of you know that's one of the questions you have to ask yourself when you go to any particular job. What kind of animation is this? I mean, is it cartoony in right. the sense where well, you might be doing funny voices, right? Or is it more realistic? I mean, there's so many different degrees, especially now with video games, where there's just no. Demarcation between how you would perform in a in a feature film or in in that you know in the script that's that's for a game. So where, where did the joke? Again, Kevin Conroy was amazing. Was yeah. like amazing. Yeah. I think I oh, think I when you, when you talk about like people who've portrayed Batman, Batman, right. you got to put him up there even with the live action yeah. because it was such a. Was well, such I'm a great... prejudiced. I, he is my all-time favorite Batman, and I'm you know my first Batman, of course, was Adam West. I only did Joker once with Adam, and I was. I, I got a big lump in my throat because I didn't know it was going to be him. We did it for charity, and <laughs> they didn't tell me it was going to be Kevin. So I walked in, and there he is sitting there in a Hawaiian shirt, and I went, oh, no, I can't do Joker in front of, <laughs> in front of Batman. Not that Batman. I can only be compared unfavorably with Cesar Romero in this, in this case, and I would shave my mustache if I got... Got, got a uh, on-camera gig as the Oh, yeah, Joker. that's right. Cesar Romero never <laughs> he wouldn't shave his mustache. I, so they just did the makeup could, over his damn yeah, mustache. I never could understand that. Even when I was a kid, I go, you mean it's not important enough to just shave for the part? <laughs> It'll grow back, dude. <laughs> what, are you hoping for more Latin lover parts in between episodes? It really bugged me. I don't know why. I finally met uh, Cesar Romero, and, uh, you know, I had to introduce myself, although he had no idea who I was, but... Uh, we just happened to be sitting next to a table where it was like filled with golden age MGM people. So I seized the opportunity and I did meet him. But uh, what were we talking about? Uh, oh, Joker, yeah. Um, well, I, you know, the thing is, I had just come off of a year of doing Amadeus, almost a year. We did the first national tour and then they brought me to New York and I finished out my run there. And one of the first things I did when I got back was, was the audition for the Joker. I had done one episode that they just gave me. Because I said, oh, I want to be on Batman so bad. And so they put me in the Heart of Ice episode, later won an Emmy. And I'd have to agree. And when I read the script, I went, this is so deep for a children's cartoon. I mean, it's melancholy and poignant. It was the first Mr. Freeze episode. So as soon as I got over the fact that I wasn't playing Mr. Freeze. I know you wanted to play Mr. Freeze. <laughs> uh, that's okay, homie. I thought that's where yeah, you were going. Yeah, well, that's where I was going. Yeah. I'm the guy who pushes Mr. Freeze into the solution. But like I say, I didn't audition. They just gave me the part because I said I want to be on it. And I guess they were, you know, peppering it with, you know, so-called celebrities or whatever. And I, I wasn't miscast. Andrea made, made sure I was right for the part. 
<clears throat> but all I'm saying is, and I said earlier, let your, uh, your um, geek flag fly. When I went and I met Bruce Tim and Paul Dini, who's the writer who won the Emmy for that episode, and Michael Ansara, who was playing Mr. Freeze, and struggling terribly. He doesn't come from a comic book background. He's a passionate actor. Speaking of Barbara Eden, he had been married to her. He was in a show when I was a kid called Broken Arrow, where he played an American Indian. So he's a very passionate actor. And they had to keep saying, no, that's too much emotion. I would weep. If my eyes could still. No, no, no. <laughs> Don't know. They flatten it out, flatten it out. So it was going against his better instincts. It was terribly difficult for him because Mr. Freeze was supposedly devoid of any emotion like that. But I went nuts on them. I mean, in other words, I started peppering them. Question Are you going to do Dr. Hugo Strange? Are you going to do Clayface? Are you going to do Two Face? Are you going to have episodes where there are no villains? Are you going to have episodes where there's, it's just a mystery? You know, and I just, I let, because I knew Batman so well. And um, I, I know this is true because I just recently wrote an introduction for a, a Joker a coffee table book, and I decided to go back and look at all the episodes that I had done. And uh, I listened to the commentary <laughs> where Bruce Tim and a couple of people discuss me coming in. Oh. Yeah, I know. It's Was that, is that of, the kind of thing you don't want to hear? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, I just, like I said, I totally nerded out on them because I was so excited about it. And, you know, that somebody was finally doing Batman that way. Right. Because I love the Adam West one. And it has its, a legitimacy all its own because it captured that silly side of comic books. But, you know, for the rest of us that wanted, and, you know, uh, and the, there was the Michael Keaton, Tim Burton version, again, a, a good version and so forth. But I said, you know, this will give us breathing room. We're going to be able to do so many different characters. And the stories will be shorter. At 22 and a half minutes, they're more likely to reflect comic book stories than having to puff it out for a two-and-a-half-hour movie. Well, the Warner Brothers, the Batman the Animated Series, was sort of the first, in my estimation, the first sort of gritty ver a grittier version of Batman. I mean, Tim Burton's Batman was was very stylized and comic booky, and And it was also influenced by Dark Knight, by Frank Miller. Right. Because remember, I mean, I remember in the trades when they announced that Batman would star Bill Murray and, and Eddie Murphy. So what? I said, yeah. I said, uh-oh, they're going to do a comedic take on it, you know? I don't remember that at all. Yeah. No, that's for sure. I mean, I... I'm, now I kind of want that to happen. Well, I mean, <laughs> look, I, I, I could see it being a very funny movie, but I didn't want them to do it. I mean, well, let me put it this way. I'm friends with Michael Uslan, and he, you can read his book, The, the Boy Who Loved Batman. Uh, everywhere you pitched it, they could only see it as pow, bang, biff. Yeah. Nice work, chum. You know, like, yeah. they couldn't see it as a serious vehicle uh, for an adult uh, take. And once Frank Miller came out with his version, they started, well, okay, we can kind of see that. It was a combination of a lot of things. But we did follow, uh, we didn't come before that 1989 uh, Batman. And I do just want to reiterate, I, I didn't, when I said the first gritty version of Batman, I meant like on film or television, not, I mean, obviously, I take for granted that people know that I understand how comic books work, but I just mean like the visual, like the, the, the like a film or, or television version of mm -hmm. Batman, they, they just hadn't really captured right. it that way yet. So how do you take, how do you play the, with the Joker go, because it's, it's borderline like, Way out there. Mm. So how do you ground him in reality? Well, I've just same been time? getting to my personal experience with it was that after I had done that one episode, about a month or two went by, and then my agent called and said, "The people at Batman want to know if you want to audition for the Joker." 
I said, are you kidding? Of course. Uh, because like I said, the other was, do you want to be in that episode? And I just showed up, or they sent me the script and I read it and I showed up. I didn't audition. This one was, do you want to audition? And I said, sure. Now, I had misgivings. I thought, you know, um, Joker's a little too high profile. I would have preferred to do a character that had never... That uh, is really not subtle. Uh, <laughs> he just walked to the front with an audience Q&A in five minutes. Cheers! Oh. So get your questions ready. It's so oh, charming, God. too. Like, no, so. No, I know how fast I have to finish this story then. So <laughs> I told you I'd been doing Amadeus. And one of the things about Amadeus was Mozart was supposed to have a laugh that was really at odds with that uh, you know, magnificent music he wrote. It was supposed to be really stick in the craw of Salieri and startle the Viennese court when he laughed. And it was described in the script as like a brain hee-haw kind yeah. of laugh. And one of the things that you do in an eight-a-week situation, at least I do, is you try and figure out ways to keep it fresh for yourself. I mean, obviously, you're doing the same play eight times a week, but one of the places that I could play around a little bit was the laugh. As long as it stayed within the perimeters of being startling and weird, I could change it, you know? And it, it, got, it you know, was one of those things that was flexible. My point is, I had an arsenal of a lot of bizarre laughs in my quiver when I showed up to do this voiceover. And let me tell you, they had decided to change the actors. So six episodes with Joker were already finished. The first six that I did were dubbed after the fact. And that's hard. You know what ADR is. Beep, beep. Huge pain in the ass because you, you have to match on, the lip flap. Yes, and you have to come in. It's a, it's a, it's a skill that you develop, it, uh, rhythmic. You come in where the fourth beep would be or the third beep would be, because they set it ahead, so you, then you do, and you have to, and again, you're matching the rhythms of some other actor. And then on, on top of which, I listened to the tracks of the actor they were replacing, and he was fantastic. I thought he was great. And of course, an inner voice said, Mark, keep that in the thought bubble. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't talk them out of, you know, considering you to play the part. But what I'm saying is, you know, it was a different kind of skill. There was only a little black and white drawing of the joke at the top of the page. It did say, don't think Nicholson, mm -hmm. which was sort of liberating. Um, oh, but, that must have been so irritating. Well, I'll tell you one Nicholson thing was terrible. Once I did get the part, uh, I, I, I've, I've said this many times. If you're bored with this, I, I'll, I'll make it quickly. But when I was leaving the studio, part of the Joker is his incredible arrogance. I mean, slipping into the behind the wheel of that crazy car, I love his sense of entitlement, and he's a genius. He, you know, I mean, it's just so fun to play something that I'm so not. What would he say? What would he say? Well, I mean, <laughs> when I left that first audition, I thought, that's the best joker they're going to hear. They live to be 110. And if they don't hire me, they're crazy. And then, of course, a week later when they said, uh, my agent called and said, oh, they want you for Joker. I went, oh, no. I can't do that. They said, what are you talking about? I said, oh, my God. You know, if it were somebody that no one had heard, if it were Clayface or Two-Face or anybody but the Joker, and even my friends, the actors, said, boy, you're pretty brave. I said, what are you talking about? Well, I wouldn't want to follow Jack Nicholson in anything. Went, oh, no. <laughs> I'm like, that's right. Jack Nicholson, I did forget he played the part. You know, uh, but uh, so I mean, I went 180 degrees in the other direction. I lost all confidence thinking there's no way I can come up with anything that will satisfy 
uh, a character that at that time had been around for 50 years, you know, 40 to 92, yeah, uh, 50 some odd years. Uh, there's no way. And the fans can be the most critical of them all. They don't sugarcoat it, you know. And I wasn't, I don't even think I was on the internet in those days. I don't think I could have been. But my point is, you know, I would read fan magazines and, you know, trade magazines. I thought, they're going to slaughter me no matter what I do. And in fact, I remember saying, how about if you don't bill me? You know, just like Karloff and Frankenstein, just have question marks. <laughs> because I thought, what's going to happen? I'd seen what had happened to uh, Michael Keaton. Sure. And they announced that I'm playing the Joker. And people think, Luke Skywalker playing? Oh, please. You know, he's going to be terrible. Uh, but that's a good place for people's brains to be, because then when you come in and you're awesome, they're like, holy shit. Well, it certainly lowers expectations. It's not a bad play. It's not a bad... No, no. The same as the guy who was like, this will be on the TV in a week. And then to see the movie, you're like, oh, it's that? You know? Like, can you, can you, yeah. can you, can you just do a second of Joker? It's fun surprising people. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, well, the thing... Uh, Joker, yeah? The clown prince of crime. In that area. But see, the thing is, um, he's, he's not just one thing. I mean, in other words, in each script, I, I like to pretend I'm playing him for the very first time. And I say, how is he used in this script? Because he's used in a variety of different ways. There was a parody of Thelma and Louise where uh, my girlfriend runs off with poison ivy and Joker's in an apron trying to run the house. And he's cuckolded, clearly. <laughs> and, and, he, and he looks foolish. I mean, I'm really protective of the character. I got really mad when I was in World's Finest because I, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. What I'm saying is, in that case, he was played as for comedy. Mm -hmm. Other times, he can be very sinister. It depends. When we did things that were direct for video or the feature Mask of the Phantasm, you could go to darker places that aren't, and in these video games that are meant to be for older. Seriously, because you, you did Joker in, in Arkham City and Arkham Asylum yes, as well. Yes, yes. Um, That's how I wound up here tonight. I mean, to my shock, because I said, uh, they said, you're nominated for a BAFTA. I said, yeah, okay. I was nominated for a video game award, and I was nominated for uh, uh, an Annie. I never win, but, I mean, it's flattering to get nominated. And not only was I nominated for a BAFTA, but the very guy, Stephen Merchant, who had beat me the previous month at the video game awards, was up for the BAFTA for the same thing as I was. For so Portal? I, was he up for Portal? He, I yeah. think that's what it was. I, I don't know. I, I just know him from the, you know, Ricky Gervais, from, right. from all of the, his work there, and he's such a good writer, and he's such a fun actor. But what, all I'm saying is, I thought, well, you know, in the case of uh, the video game awards, I just had to go to Culver City to found, find out I lost. I'm not traveling 7,000 miles to London. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Thank you for showing up. We don't have anything for you at this <laughs> time. I know. I'm so sorry, but the, <laughs> look no, at but the streets though—they're very old. My theory, my theory, my theory is that you know, if you don't show up, you have a better chance of winning. Because, to my shock, I was coming home from a voiceover gig, and the phone rang, you know, uh, myself, and it was Paul Crocker, you know, calling from London. So it's seven o'clock here. What is it like? Two in the morning. He was obviously had been celebrating for hours. <laughs> and he said, yeah, you won. I couldn't believe it. I mean, obviously, I, you, you know, that's not why you get into anything, is to be awarded in any way, shape, or form. But I especially thought, since it's a BAFTA, they would probably want to 
lean towards homegrown talent. So if he's going to beat me in Culver City, he's definitely going to beat me in London. And, uh, but um, yeah, it's been amazing to me that a, a character like the Joker has been so satisfying over the years in a way I never expected. I mean, I thought well, maybe one of the parts I played in New York, and a lot of them rivaled. I mean, uh, Tony Hart in Harrigan and Hart, Gordon Miller in uh, Room Service. These are parts that really uh, I love playing because, you know, once you inhabit them, they're so not you, but you can uh, vicariously enjoy the qualities that are not part of your own personality in somebody else's personality. And I never expected that it would come from a comic book character that I knew when I was a nine-year-old boy and, and last as long as it has. I, I'm celebrating my 20th year associated with that character. Now, there were a couple of gaps when Kevin Michael Richardson played him in a series called The Batman, right. and Jeff Bennett played him in uh, um, Brave and the Bold. But um, after the original run of the animated series and all of its incarnation, The Adventures of Batman and Robin and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, and we did talking toys. We did uh, amusement park rides. We did all the stuff. Uh, they, I had not done it in four or five years, and they asked me back for Arkham uh, Asylum. Is it kind of fun and rewarding in a way that, that you've created this whole other character that, that kind of makes people go, oh, my God, it's the Joker. Oh, yeah, I guess he was in Star Wars, too. Like, that it sort of flips in a weird sort that, of way? Well, that's what I'm saying, is it, it, it's so... They're at, like, opposite ends. I mean, one's an icon of virtue. Yeah. One's an icon of villainy. And like I said, I always loved... I mean, I loved the... Uh, the, the, the antagonist almost as much as the protagonist, because getting a reaction from an audience, even if it's negative that they hate you, boo, and they're throwing <laughs> fruit at you, that's, that's a good thing. Right. Because you've, you know, you've elicited a response. Even oh, good. Well, I feel so much better now about <laughs> what happens to me on the and internet. You don't want fruit thrown at you when you're playing <laughs> Hamlet, but, you know. <laughs> It'd be uh, funny to throw a ham at a guy playing Hamlet. That I know you want to open it up to questions. I do want to open up to questions, but just be before we do, uh, I, I just, like, just a minute, just one quick minute on, on video games and, and Whatever and how, you want. I mean, how it's you know. opened up a whole, because, you know, the thing about, about television animation or film animation is that there really only are a limited number of of parts available, but with the sort of explosion of the video game right. industry, where there, in my estimation, it's it's every bit as legitimate as any other medium. Now you you have this whole other arena to work in. Well, one thing that's unusual is you know you read a traditional script and you think, well, that's a good movie or that's a good television episode, that's a good play. With video games, it's it's the most difficult of all mediums I've ever worked in to figure out not whether or not it's a good part or they're good actors or good writing, but whether it's going to be a good game. Sure. I remember did, I did a Wolverine game. And I thought, oh, great. You know, first of all, I said, look, I can't imitate Hugh Jackman. They said, no, 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 do your own take. And again, I auditioned, I got it. I thought, oh, great. Now, if I'm going to do, it was sort of, uh, it was very Clint Eastwood -y and real gravelly. And I wasn't talking to an empty chair, but I was just... <laughs> <laughs> but my point is, I thought, oh boy, I'm playing Wolverine. If this is successful, it's you know another comic book uh, character, and it's not DC this time. It's Marvel. You want to branch out a little bit, and there's potential for Wolverine two, three, and four. 
So I do this game. And I'm telling you, these scripts are like this, because you can branch off and do, you know, depending on what the player wants to do, they can do anything they want. Um, and I gave it to Nathan and Griffin to play. These are my first and second sons, and then I have a daughter, Chelsea. And uh, they played it, I guess. I mean, I saw them about a month later and said, oh, guys, by the way, how's that uh, Wolverine game? And they looked at each other. <laughs> no, 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 don't sugarcoat it. Give me straight. Give it to me straight. Well, you were good. Oh, no. I said, that bad? They go, oh, yeah, it's not a good game. And they were right. I mean, we didn't make a sequel. That's what I'm saying. If you're, unless you're a gamer, you know, and I played games when the boys were really small, but just like you were telling me backstage, you can get so obsessed with these things that you go, oh my God, it's quarter to four. Yeah. You know, I mean. Four days from when I started. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, well. It's just, it, 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 it eats up your, your time so much. So I don't really play them all that much. And like I say, I was astonished as anyone when Arkham Asylum did as well as it did because yeah. they'd had not, they had not had good luck with Batman games and my son, like I say, would call me up and go, Dad, go to joystick.com. You got a 9.7. I said, is that good? They go, out of 10, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, and like I say, you know, be careful when you go to the uh, comment section of the Internet. You know, we call that the stinky public bathroom that you want to get out of <laughs> as soon as you can because it's brutal. Oh, really I mean, brutal. You can, you can get your ego really stoked. But then you can read some stuff like, ooh, why does that person hate me so much? I can't much? wait to go onto this message board to yeah. see how much people love me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh. I don't feel good. Yeah. And also with a game, it can t sometimes it can take you 30 hours before you realize, ah, crap, this game isn't great. It didn't pay off well or it didn't go to a well, good Well, I'm place. learning. I mean, I talk to gamers because they want they wanted to be difficult enough so they don't beat it in, in an afternoon. There's certain challenges sure. they like. There's, there's a flexibility, the way it moves and the way it, there's so many uh, 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 known unknowns and unknown unknowns yeah. that it's like, you know, I've been wrong on, like on Broadway where I go, oh, this thing's a hit for sure. And <clears throat> it, you know, flops. Uh, the Nerd, I thought, oh, this will close in two oh, weeks. Oh, yeah, Charles Nelson Riley directed that, right? He sure did. Charles yeah. Nelson Riley. Yeah, and it went for, I mean, it ran for two years. It ran a year after I left. For sure. We should probably open the, up to the questions yes, uh, yes. so the, the Brits from BAFTA don't uh, kill me. Actually, they just give you a stern look. That's about as bad as it gets. You uh, <laughs> shouldn't go on. Um, let's, uh, let's start with this young lady in a second. Was that you? Did you raise your hand? Oh, the, this other young lady. Uh, <laughs> hey, you're wearing a Nerdist shirt. Hey, hey so uh, I'm kind of a fanboy. I'll, I'm apologize because you're going to do the kind of the relating thing that you said earlier. Uh, oh, please do. My name's Luke. Uh, Come on. I was born May 25th. Come on. Uh, and I, I did small time. It was university, but I played Amadeus also. Oh. Yeah. So, anyway. Did you play but, Mozart? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, man. My uh, wife's saying you're old enough now to play Salieri. Me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, if you want to do something, let me know. <laughs> um, I guess we've kinda, you kind of touched on it already, but I'd really like to know like what you use to develop the voice of the Joker and how you've... Like, I mean, did you, was it an homage to Cesar Romero doing the highs and the lows, you know, or was it? Um... You know, when I thought about it, it was more, uh, I remember I used to love Claude Rains in The Invisible Man. Crazy. You think I'm crazy? I, so, I mean, I love that kind of gritty delivery, but I, I didn't set out to say, I'm going to do this or that. And in voiceover, a lot of times you do that sort of thing. 
I remember doing, I was playing a, like a shock jock. So I did a mixture of Howard Cosell with Jay Leno. And what I'm saying is a lot of times people won't recognize your bad impression. <laughs> what did that sound like? Well, let me see. I'd have to go way back. Isn't it true that, and a lot of, it had the cadence of a, you know, of a Howard Cosell. Yeah. But it went up until, you know, I really uh, don't know what you mean by that. So what I, all I'm saying is there's qualities that you might take. You might mix those characters, and people won't say, oh, you're doing Leno and you're doing Costell. You know, you, by, by doing a, 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 like an, a shade of a character that's in your mind, of, a, of an established actor in your mind, you come up with a third rail that, that's all your own. So with, with, with Joker, I don't know what happened. I know the first six that I had to do, um, in retrospect, uh, Andrea Romano said, what nailed it for you was the laugh. When you did the, you know, went, you went crazy with the laugh, everybody got the chills and thought, that's the Joker. Uh, but it, so it was more on the laugh than it was on the dialogue. And like I say, he can be sort of dark. Or he can be bright. You know, he can be, he's really got uh, so many colors. And that's why he's so fun to play. And, you know, he's insane. So, you know, he's unpredictable. And when you're unpredictable, you're never boring. So that, that's why I think he has, he's such a joy to play. Cool. And uh, I guess one more, sorry, just to extend on a little bit more. Um, I haven't, I, I feel really horrible. I haven't played Arkham Asylum. Right. And, uh, Get the fuck neither out of here. Um, but I've never played it either. So you have to. Get, nah, it's fine. You can stay. Were you able to? I mean, as as a person ages, their voice gets a little bit lower. And sorry, sure. were you able to? Did you approach it differently when you did the game? Well, first of all, when I saw the drawings for the game, I said clearly this is not the models from the the animated version, right. which even that had undergone gone a change. Remember when he lost his pupil? He went to all black eyes right. and no red on his lips. I like the original design better, but that's not my call. Uh, when I saw the new designs, I said, this is really nasty looking. It's, it looks like almost like a gothic horror novel. Um, and this was even before the sequel where he was you know, dying of a mysterious right. disease. And I, and I asked about that. I said, well, what about the voice? I mean, because yeah, they, they wanted me to do the... A video game. It wasn't like I was auditioning anymore. Now Kevin was in, so you know I'm nearly there, just knowing Kevin Conroy's doing it because he's my Batman. And there's truth in that, in the in the fact that that's a very symbiotic relationship, the two of them. And I love Kevin. He hasn't read a comic book in his life, you know. And I've read too many. So uh, we're a great team. Uh, and Paul Dini was on board. He was writing it. So I, you know. But they said, no, you can go as dark as you want with this one. And uh, um, he's I, obviously probably the, the darkest and the sickest of them all. Because remember, when we were doing the cartoon, people would say, why don't you kill more people? And we had standards and practices, which is the censors. And it was meant to be a cartoon for children. So the Joker was all bark and no bite in the, in the early cartoons. You know, he, he talked bit, a big game, but he really couldn't be as lethal as some of the older fans wanted him to be, until these games. It's sure, nice to meet you. you. Come here. What is, <laughs> what is that t-shirt? That's, that's my uh, thing. That's a thing I made up. Oh, OK. You tweeted at me last weekend. I did? Yeah. What did I?
Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, the Nerdist is my th- the company thing, that podcast. This is it. We're doing it. Yeah, this is a podcast. You're fucking on a podcast. Are you? Oh, my God, I just said the F word. There's like a 12-year-old right there. Oh, you have the internet, right? Please tell me this wasn't like a Christian day camp trip. I will never come to Hollywood again. So sorry. Listen, don't swear unless you want to seem cool and older. Uh, what's, your, what's your name? It's not Luke, I'll tell you that. Hi, it's uh, Chris, great job by the way. Thanks very much. Oh, thank you very much. Um, Mark, people yeah. must get really overwhelmed to meet you, but is there a famous person that you've met that left you tongue-tied with admiration? Oh, too many to recount, but obviously one that I had to get over was Sir Alex. And... Uh, he invited me to lunch before we started shooting just so I could meet him. And he's, he's one of those people that doesn't, I mean, he's, he's just everything you want him to be and more, but not really able to accept praise. You know, he doesn't want to hear about that. No, 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 let's talk about your career. Really? You want to hear about a dog food commercial and uh, <laughs> six months on General Hospital? I mean, come on. But... Uh, yeah, it was hard for me because, I mean, I, like I say, I'd seen him in The Lady Killers and The Lavender Hill Mob and uh, Bridge on the River Kwai. My mom was a huge Alec Guinness fan. And we could see older movies uh, in the movie theater because when you're on base, they change every night and sometimes they'd run classics. But, yeah, I remember, oh, so many times. I read a scene once with, uh, for, uh, to play Henry Fonda's son on The Smith Family. I just couldn't do it. My voice was all. I met George Harrison. I said, if I say hello, I'm going to cry like a little girl. Because, <laughs> yeah, I got that lump in my throat. And I managed to get out, you know, I just want to thank you because all the great music and just, wow, you're just great. You know, <laughs> you know what he said to me? You're not so bad yourself. <laughs> That's, that's unbelievable. I, I, unbelievable. I mean, I could have died and gone to heaven right there. <laughs> it's nice, though, and I think it's nice, you know, particularly someone in your position who has that all the time, is that I feel like that helps you sort of understand where people are coming from. Yes, not, exactly. That, like, the fact, I think it's really important for anyone, no matter how successful you get, to still be a fan of things. And I of think course, and not being, get, don't get cynical. No. Don't take things for granted. Let things be fresh and new as, as best you can. And like I say, that I'm, a lot of times I totally get what it is that motivates the kind of fervor that some people have because I understand it on from not not for Star Wars but for other things. So I think we have time for a couple more questions. No, that, that's it. What? I will fight you, but I'll lose. I'll talk uh, extra fast. Um, okay. <laughs> I'll tell you what, what if we just do a couple more if they're really fast? Right. Okay, okay, I'm so sorry. This is such a unique opportunity for me. I just, guys, what do you say we just lock the doors and stay here all night, huh? Who wants to go home, really? Uh, besides maybe Mark, but I will, I will be here all night. What is your question? Hi, thank you. Um, you spoke about your inspiration behind the Joker, but what about some of your other video games? I think there's Full Throttle, Wing Commander, and a few of those. And, uh, like, what was your inspiration behind those? Did you have free range with them, or was it more they told well, you? Well, Full Throttle, I remember seeing a drawing. He was in an ice cream three-point suit. He was, I think, from the South, and I sort of modeled him after Sidney Greenstreet. I love 
uh, character actors in old black and white movies. Uh, with uh, Wing Commander, <clears throat> that was more of a straightforward, uh, you know, protagonist role. So, I mean, I was sort of doing my version of a gritty leading man. I was really glad he let me grow a beard for that because uh, that helped give me a little more maturity. But, uh, you know, a lot of times I see these are stepping off points. You know, when I say uh, uh, Claude Rains or I say uh, uh, Sidney Greenstreet, I'm not really uh, uh, imitating them as, as so much as I might take a... Um, a cadence from them or, or a, a certain kind of approach that they, they're influenced by them more than imitating them. But I love those old black and white movies, you know. I mean, uh, I did a character called Larry 3000 on uh, Time Squad. Um, and it was like every character I'd ever seen that served the queen. <laughs> yes, your majesty. You know, I just love, and then there was a character that used to be on the Rocky and Bullwinkle show that had that sort of lisp, you know, that sort of undefinable, I don't know, I think he's a bit minty. <laughs> but I don't, I, I can't be sure. Now, at least with Time Squad, I was playing, I got a review that said, Hammer plays a robot that makes uh, uh, C-3PO look like a teamster. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I told Anthony Daniels that, and I thought, you know what's so funny about that, the people that speculate like that, how can a robot be gay? I mean, it's just, it's, it's an oxymoron. I mean, they're machines. So that's what was so funny in the first place, and that's probably what made me be able to, to go so uh, over the top with that character. But like I say, it would be watching, like, Betty Davis play the queen, and whoever it was, uh, you know, Ernest Thessinger or, or any of those old character actors that, again, had dialects that stuck in my ear forever. One more, one more question. What is your name, ma'am? Thanks. I'm Christine. Hi, Hi Christine. Mark Hamill. Hi, Christine. Um, I have a question about Star Wars. Yeah. I was wondering, do you remember your audition for it? I sure do. And that experience? Let's hear it. Well, I mean, uh, very quickly, very quickly, I only got 12 pages of the script. And when I read it, I couldn't figure it out. I said, is this like a parody, like a Mel Brooks thing? Because the person who told me about it was Robert England. He'd already been up for it, and he didn't get cast. He said, Robert England? Yeah. He said, did you go out for that... Uh, uh, the, the movie Lucas is doing. I said, the guy who did graffiti? He said, yeah, he's doing some kind of like uh, Flash Gordon movie. He said, I went up for it. I didn't get it. I said, what'd you go up for? He goes, uh, Han Solo. And I said, is that the part I go up for? I don't know. Ask your agent. So one, to make a long story short, I got a, in the mail 12 pages or so. And like I said, I couldn't figure out the tone of it. You know, there's a line in it that I remembered all these years later, because it's in the screen test. I later went down and I did a video screen test. Somebody just told me a month ago, the guy operating the camera was Ben Burt, who, one of the only person who won an Oscar for his very first movie, which was Star Wars. He got best sound. Anyway, uh, and, and Harrison was there, you know, playing uh, solo. Now, I knew him from graffiti, and so he obviously knew George, because I kept pumping George. I said, George, is this like... Like, like supposed to be like kind of a comedy, or is it serious? Or just, well, um, well, let's, let's just do it. And we'll we'll talk about it later. <laughs> I go uh, uh, okay, <laughs> and I'm I'm you know I'm I, you know I'm saying to Harrison, I said, is this like like meant to be making kind of like making fun of it? You know, is it like a, a satire? Okay, let's just. You know. <laughs> 
And I said, oh, OK, thanks. Um, but truly, one of the lines, and I'll never forget it, because it's not in the movie. This line was in the screenplay uh, originally, and originally, and we never filmed it. By the time I got it, it was written out. But it was, uh, we're in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. Uh, and it's that part where, you know, he's headed for that small moon. That's no moon, that's a space station. Now, Obi-Wan wasn't in the screen test, so I guess Harrison said that line. And, uh, and, I, and I said, you know, I said, his, his character was of a mind that, uh, that he did his part of the bargain, but they're turning back. Hey, kid, you know, I held up my side of the bargain. And blah, 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 blah. And here's the actual line. But we can't turn back. Fear is their greatest defense. I, I doubt if the actual security there is any greater than it was on Aquilire Sullis. And what there is is most likely directed towards a large-scale assault. <laughs> now, now, I just want you to think about it, because I was saying... I couldn't figure out whether this was a send-up or a satire. Because, I mean, I could, I could decode the line, but we can't turn back. Fear is their greatest defense. In other words, people coming up on, on the side of it are so scared that they'll turn away. I get that. So far, so good. I doubt if the actual security there at the Death Star is any greater than it was on Aquili or Sullust. Two BS made up names of small, you know, whatever. Planetoids, or it doesn't matter. Those are, you know, acceptable uh, nonsense words in science fiction. Any greater than it was on that corner. And what there is, is most likely directed towards a large scale assault. In other words, we could slip in. It's not like we've got an armada. We're not showing up with 50 ships. It's just this little round one. Um, but like I say, it, uh, intellectually, I could make sense of it, but I thought, how do you deliver that line and make it sound like it's something that's coming to you for the first time? <laughs> I mean, it's as, George, as Harrison later said, you can write this shit, you can't say it. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please help me thank Mark Hamill, also BAFTA, BAFTA Games. Go to BAFTALA.org. Will you take a picture of us up here, please? And can we just take a quick minute? Sure. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Go to Stamps.com, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Nerdist for a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and $55 of free postage. That's Stamps.com. Enter the promo code NERDIST.